I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Inspired Evolution. I'm your humble host, Amrish Sandhu, and you're tuning in to a conscious conversation designed to help you grow. Our mission here is simple. It's for you to live your purpose, live your best life, live the life you love. This podcast is sponsored by Enthusiasm for Life, by great creation itself. To keep the good vibes flowing for myself and yourself, do us a solid, subscribe to the Inspired Evolution podcast on YouTube the home of the Inspired Evolution podcast. Now sit back, relax, open your mind, open your heart to this conversation and stay inspired. Keep evolving. Welcome to the Inspired Evolution and it is a, oh my God, it's a treat today. We have with us Tom Chi. Tom, how are you, sir? I'm doing good. It is, such a, it is such a pleasure to have you here, brother. For those shooting into Tom for the first time, oh, my God, he's an inventor, he's a leader, he's a coach, he's a speaker, he's an investor. Some of the things that really drive him is helping humanity become a net positive to nature. Imagine that for just a second. He coaches corporate executives and top investors. He strengthens social entrepreneurship. He gives talks and workshops on mindset and like the unlimited possibilities of the mind. It is such a pleasure to have you here today, Tom. Thank you so much for doing this with us. Yeah, looking forward to it. So I wanted to dive in really quickly. Um, For those that identify with your work, I think are very well aware that, you know, there is a massive engineering, uh, you're an incredible engineer, (laughs) let's put it that way. Um, But when you dig a little bit deeper under the surface, it seems to be, and I remember asking one of my university lecturers this, and my background was in, is in engineering as well, is that, you know, it sort of seems, especially when you look at people like Einstein, it, you sort of get to the point where the, some of the most remarkable engineers are also some of the more metaphysical thinkers. Why do you think that becomes the case? Well, I mean, I'm formally trained in physics and electrical engineering. And Mm -hmm. I guess what physics teaches you is how to understand the entire physical world. So I think that already gets you pretty far in terms Mm -hmm. of thinking about some of the big questions. This is why, you know, some sub branches of physics, like, you know, cosmology, astrophysics, really just go to the the basics, like, why do we all exist? And why is the Mm -hmm. universe here? And how does the whole thing work? So uh, physics, definitely. And and even if you didn't do physics, engineering is a very kind of organized type of cognition. Mm. And it basically um, is not just organized, but it's like meant to go create something. Right. Mm. So, so scientists, I was also a scientist, so nothing against scientists, but scientists mm. are mostly focused on studying the natural world in various forms. 
and just having a consistent way of being able to go and do a type of inquiry to be able to reveal more and more about a thing that exists. Mm -hmm. um, but engineers need to create things that don't exist. And effectively, the cognition of being the, the, the type of cognition that allows you to be structured and principled about going from something not existing to existing is really useful for lots of things, including asking big questions about, you know, why we make what we make. Mm. That was going to be one of the questions I was hoping to get to later in the podcast, but let's go right there. <laughs> We're, you know, when we talk about um, why we make what we make, there seems to be like an, an incredibly rapid growth to, you know, this sort of curve to technology that we can map and model out. And it's growing really, 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 really fast compared to, you know, there's a lot of these talks around our mind is actually from a linear world. You know, you see an animal sort of speed up, slow down. It's a lot more linear than the growth of actual, like of what technology actually is. How, what, what do you feel about the, um, yeah, taking from what, like, what technology could potentially become versus what the human mind is actually capable to interface and interact with. Um, some part of me will ask about the moral obligations, <laughs> some of that coming up as well. What are your thoughts around some of this? Yeah, I mean, whenever you design or engineer anything, mm. then there's some sort of intention in it. Sometimes mm. I like to say that design is really just a, a frozen intention. And then oh. when you go and kind of interact with it, you kind of unfreeze the intention of the designer. Same well, that's sort of beautiful. Goes, yeah. yeah, same, same sort of thing. Uh, same idea goes for like when you engineer something. And, um, you know, there are some real questions about like the intentions of what you have chosen to design, engineer, create. Mm -hmm. And I think like what has been tricky and like, you know, the way that you phrase the question is, Oh, technology is you know going so fast, but technology is a a thing that happens because of a set of decisions that we make, mm -hmm. and because of those decisions, it means that there's intention baked into the the movement of technology. So, to the extent that technology is moving faster than people can get accustomed to it, it's because we decided that it should. And mm -hmm. I think there is a a element of you know. Did we make those decisions with the best intentions, right? I think a lot well, of consciously, times, like, <laughs> yeah, right. I, I think you know part of the reason that a lot of folks kind of are pushing forward this this edge is that um, you know if you go faster, you can make money in less time, mm. right? And that is not necessarily an intention to serve. Mm. Now, it's uh, it making money doesn't necessarily mean that you're not serving, like. They can absolutely over, or overlap, but it doesn't guarantee that you are serving either. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we can get into these spots. I mean, we see this, especially with social media, uh, where, yeah, there's this way of designing that technology, which kind of constitutes the fastest way you can make money out of it. But maybe it's actually not the right intention to freeze. Mm -hmm. um, to be kind of harsh about it, like the way that I've kind of phrased how we've done a lot of the software work recently is uh, we spent most of the 20th century figuring out how to strip mine the physical resources of the planet. And we're spending the 21st century strip mining the cognitive resources of the planet. Because social, social media to me is like cognitive strip mining. It, mm -hmm. it wasn't necessarily your intention. There's uh, a tension that they're, that they're stripping from you. And it's a finite resource, just like you know, minerals in the ground. Because as much as the mind, you know, is very flexible and there's an infinite number of things that a person can think about, a person's life is still a finite number of days and mm -hmm. there's still a finite number of thoughts you'll have in that life. So mm -hmm. given that there's like a finite number of people and a finite number of thoughts in a life, then that actually means it's a, it's a limited resource that we're effectively strip mining and using in a particular way that may, may not be in the intention of the uh, folks that we are doing the end user via software yeah. yeah 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 time and attention are very precious commodities when you put it into the context of what you're describing and wow that is a um yeah i i'm just going to call it a bit of a harrowing metaphor i think it's 
thinking about it as yeah what we did with the physical resources and putting them into the urban environment and obviously as a structural engineer i can relate to that thinking about what yeah the the software development and that metaphor of strip mining our cognitive resources is yeah you know like, like i can see the thing is is that this is not necessarily what software needs to do mm -hmm. and you know um so before I worked on web software, because I worked at Yahoo and Google, but before that I worked yep. at Microsoft and I worked at Microsoft Office. And I would say in that team, the thing that we were thinking about all the time is, oh, here's a complex task that people are trying to get done. So mm. they're trying to take like a, a set of email addresses or like, you know, customer information that's in Excel and connect it with a word template to be able to send out these, you know, like mailers, you know, through Outlook or whatever. And we were always asking the question, like, how, how do we make it so it's easier for a person to do the thing that they want, mm -hmm. which is very different than the question that social media asks. Social media asks is like, well, how do I get enough behavior from you so mm -hmm. I can get what advertisers want? Mm. Right. And yeah. this is just to say that software doesn't intrinsically need to be built off of the intention that a lot of modern software is built off of, but mm -hmm. a lot of this kind of freemium you know, uh, you know, ad based sort of stuff, it almost has to be built off of a cognitive strip mining model. Yeah. Now, when you pay for stuff, like if you pay for a, I don't know, like a, 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 like a little design tool, or if you pay for Netflix or whatever, they don't necessarily need to throw a bunch more ads in there and know that mm. much about you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, these are choices that we made around the business models that we were going to um, you know, most in power. And then, mm -hmm. yeah, we're, we're kind of living the consequences of that strip mining right now. What about the, um, you know, tuning into some of the work that um, Noam Chomsky put into the world. And he talks about how we're, you know, this, this extinction that potentially we're facing now and that we're so pot committed into the technological revolution that actually our decision makers um are hoping and this is how it's been in the past as well he references actually that we're hoping that and we're so pot committed into technology and its advancements that we're past the point of return from where we are that we actually hope and pray that the next technological advancement that will save us in terms of cleaning the waterways helping us with greenhouse gases x y and z potentially even you know our relationship with attention and social media we're waiting for the next piece of technology around the corner to come and alleviate the pains that were put in place from previous advancements your thoughts on on us being leveraged out into technology that way so there's a difference between physical and psychological technologies mm. so like when you're talking about like hey you know we um make a bunch of stuff out of steel and aluminum and there's a bunch of mining that has to happen with that mm. those are physical things yeah and yeah one can absolutely imagine that um you know there's a best way that we know how to do it right now mm -hmm. uh, which is actually what we are largely doing like people are not running crazily inefficient you know smelting facilities or bauxite processing facilities you know just for the heck of it right uh, so mm -hmm. like when you actually get a technical innovation in these sort of physical processes, they actually tend to be largely, you know, adopted reasonably quickly. And mm -hmm. if you are kind of doing those um, innovations with an eye toward better environmental, you know, better relationship to the environment, then yeah, you can get a actual real, you know, win there. When, when, what I was just saying about software is we know how to make better software than we, what we've made. Mm. Right. So it's, we are choosing to make worse software because it's more profitable. Mm -hmm. And that's a, that's just a kind of different thing that's happening between hardware and software. And I'm not sure if that, you know, goes too much in the weeds on known Chopsy's point, but I think like one needs to be specific about what technology they're talking about, as opposed to just saying, Oh, technology is too far gone. Uh, we, we don't end up having a sophisticated conversation about it. If, we just kind of do the broad brush strokes, but like when we do know how to do something better, but yeah. it just ends up being profit, more profitable to do it in a worse way, then yeah, we need to look at regulation. We need to go look at uh, kind of training ourselves in terms of our own like personal media savviness and social media savviness uh, to be able yeah. to do kind of less of it. 
um, yeah. you know, in the places where it won't be regulated. Can I ask you from a social entrepreneurship bent then, um, do you think the future is? I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I'm going to frame this in a really cumbersome way, but please, hopefully you can forgive me for that, but you and the listener. Um, social entrepreneurship. Um, is it going to be more profitable long-term to do things which have more positive intentions for the collective embedded in them? Or is that going to have to be a decision that we make that, hey, we forego profits for the social benefit? Yeah, it's a whole interesting question, you know, um, and it could be, its own like 10 hour conversation, <laughs> but like the, you know, I will say that in the work that I do day to day, we are finding a bunch of things where it is much more like that first sort of win where uh, the unit economics are better and it's way more ecologically sound, like either having way less damn, you know, way smaller footprint of damage or a positive generative footprint. And those are the companies that, you know, my firm invests in. And I see like a lot of potential in that kind of playing through when it comes to, you know, some of these other things like social media, like I said, you know, you might need to go down a regulatory track for it in order to, uh, and, you know, we've done this in the past. It's like, um, you know, car companies were like, well, adding seatbelts costs us some money. And then we were kind of like, you know, actually, we should probably add seatbelts, though. Like, <laughs> I know it costs you like a little bit more money, but it's probably worth it, right? Hashtag worth it. <laughs> right. So, yeah. so like, um, and we are actually seeing that in a number of other places like this, for example, like um, HFCs. So fluorinated gases are thousands of times more greenhouse gas warming than carbon dioxide. And they mm. can last in the atmosphere, you know, tens of thousands of years, some of them hundred thousand years. So like, we should really get a hold of them, but we're mostly using them in our air conditioners and and um, uh, and refrigerators right now. And in the U.S., we just passed a law that was aiming to go phase out by more than ninety percent. You know, HFCs, which is the kind of main class of refrigerant that we're using. So that's mm -hmm. another example of a case where it's like, yeah, regulation steps in. It basically says, hey, you know, for the for the greater good, and in this case, uh, you know, with greenhouse gases, a particular type of greenhouse gas in mind, then it's like, let's just get off of using HFCs. Let's get something else in place that has way smaller warming footprint. Because uh, if you're warming the planet, trying to cool yourself down with an air conditioner, it's like, well, that sounds a little futile. Yeah, and a bit of a spiral out of control. <laughs> Literally, so. Yeah, because there's going to be, a you know, 2 billion more air conditioners sold in the next couple of you know, decades because both rising incomes and just rising temperatures around the world. Yeah. Yeah. It was, um, it was pretty fascinating. <laughs> this is totally left brain, but, um, when I was working on one of my theses, um, <laughs> one of the interesting things I found just air conditioners is triggered sort of this conversation was I found that, um, the urban heat Island effect is actually pretty interesting because there are some cities which are naturally cooler, but they end up warmer and more inhabitable because they go up by temperature, which is actually, anyway, that was just something that I found sort of off topic, off charts, but really interesting because most of the world, obviously, that as you get close to the equator is actually struggling with the urban heat island effect, but there are some random cities that actually 
um, do better. One of the questions I've got, Tom, is this is completely left field, but um, it's you. So <laughs> I really wanted to dive into the opportunity to ask you this question. The the sort of biblical saying that we are made in the image of God. And when I unpack that personally, and feel free to unpack this in your own way, um, and please do, is, you know, we are creators in many ways. And, you know, God is uh, potentially a creative force. And we're here to, I find ourselves creating as scientists, as engineers, you know, even social entrepreneurs. Um, So if we are creating the image of God, and it seems to be that we there is currently this new evolution towards pushing for the development of information intelligence, artificial intelligence, um, IT intelligence. What does uh, what does that say about the nature of our reality, in your opinion? Do you think uh, even maybe potentially gleaning into some of that Elon Musk conversation around what he said that this is unlikely that this is base reality are we living in a simulation it's probably too left field a question but what do you think the us being creators and the way we're creating technology um yeah reflects about our mind and the way we are as creators have you contemplated this i'm sure you have (laughs) yeah of course i think most of the conversation that we're having in this era about it is people that do computer science basically thinking that what they do is way more important than it is. Mm. And um, because like, you know, honestly, if you're a computer scientist, it would be amazing if the world was a simulation. It's, it's something that you, you know how to work with, right? (laughs) Like people know how to. Controllable. Right. They know how to program Unity or Unreal Engine or like whatever. Mm -hmm. Right. So, so like, I think that this would be the case of a bunch of folks in a particular profession really wanting the world to work in a particular way. Now, I'm a physicist as well, and the world's not a simulation. It's the universe is not a simulation. So the fact that, you know, these people are having any sort of extended conversation about them, well, to be so dumb for so long takes mm. actual effort, right? <laughs> so like there, there either needs to be, you must be going for an actual effort to be this dumb so long, or there must be a benefit for, that statement possibly being true to you. Mm. And I think about that as much more of a psychological doldrum that these folks have kind of argued themselves into to to magnify their own importance. Mm -hmm. In practice, like artificial intelligence today is pretty garbage. Mm. Um, It's super dumb. Like other than, you know, a couple very specialized cases, like a game like chess or go where the rules are very well defined, kind of the parameter space, you know, is combinatorially large, but like it's um, honestly quite small compared to reality, mm-hmm. then, uh, then yeah, like artificial intelligence does quite well in those settings, but that's not really anything like the real world. Mm-hmm. So um, I think we're just getting a little bit ahead of ourselves in terms of, um, you know, how smart this stuff is. Mm-hmm. Now, it doesn't mm-hmm. mean that it's, um, that there aren't dangers. But the dangers are not that it's going to get too smart. The dangers are that we will put it into positions of too much power while it's dumb. And mm. actually, this is already happening right now. Like the, the most sophisticated artificial intelligence in the world today are trading stocks and serving you ads. Those are the actual most sophisticated artificial intelligences in the world. That's where they're deployed. Mm. And Right now, both of those are destabilizing society because we put them in too large a position of power. Trading stocks basically means that it affects the value of our markets <laughs> in markets. a consequential way. And you know, um, serving you ads actually means yeah, serving ads means it actually consequentially affects our psychologies. And it's like, okay, well, so artificial intelligence is dangerous not because it's getting generally intelligent and it's going to make some decisions against us. Mm. It's you know, artificial intelligence is dangerous because dumb people put it into places where it didn't belong and mm. it's actually not smart. Like mm. this is why we can have a flash crash where the value of coffee beans like worldwide crashes by 75% in a hundred milliseconds. Mm. You know, is it that somehow over a hundred milliseconds that everybody in the world was like, Oh, we don't like coffee anymore. And that's why the price went down. Of course not. There was like no physical value uh, change in the actual real world that happened. 
But these smart AI algorithms basically dueled each other at this high frequency trading and basically ran down the price or ran up the price. I mean, uh, in these various ways, which basically actually hurt people's lives in, in real life. In physical, tangible outcomes, yeah. Right, because if you were a coffee farmer, and a lot of coffee farmers live on $1 to $5 a day, mm-hmm. and you're around harvest time period, and you've put all this money into your crop, and you mm-hmm. really, and, and like harvest time period is like the one time of the year where you make back all that money, and then you happen to have a big flash crash, you know, the week that you're harvesting, then you've actually damaged people's lives. It's not just a fun game, you know, like GameStop or whatever. Mm-hmm. So this is us basically ruining the world through artificial intelligence, but not because AI is actually intelligent. It's because mm-hmm. we're dumb or we're acting dumb with the AI that we have. And this is the danger of like letting the folks have that conversation so long where they're kind of, you know, waxing poetic about how smart they are and how smart the AI is. And maybe we're on a simulation. That's us kind of like um, giving it too much credit. the wrong people, yeah. right? And like yeah. not actually calling them on a bunch of bad decisions that are already in play. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is going to be one of the questions I asked, but I feel like you've spoken to it already is the fear that we have potentially around, um, yeah, artificial intelligence development. But I love the way you articulated that, which is, you know, it's not that it's, it has corrupt intentions. It's just that it's not intelligent enough to do the functions that we're asking it to perform. And yet we're putting it in places of power where it can perform said functions. Yeah. AI is just another tool like a hammer and every Mm. tool, there's a moral responsibility to go use the tool. Well, like with the hammer, you can build houses, you can, you know, you can go construct things that matter and Mm. you can also bash people's heads in. There's nothing about the tool by itself that basically says how you'll use it. Mm-hmm. But you know what we have basically allowed is we have basically um, allowed unfettered use of every tool that exists in the world mm-hmm. without, and, and we basically have chalked it up to, well, it's the invisible hand of, of the free market. So like, it's just going to do what it does. But the free market is also another tool. Like mm-hmm. just because you're using the free market as a tool doesn't mean that you've abdicated your moral responsibility to use it, you know, kindly, wisely, you know, in, in, in search of, you know, benefit to humanity and for purpose. Right. Mm-hmm. And we've basically made capitalism into like a, a religion. It's like worshiping a hammer. Uh, and we basically mm-hmm. said, well, if the market said this, then that's the truth. It's like, no guys, no, you basically just abdicated your moral responsibility to use capitalism wisely. And for me, capitalism is just a, is a synonym for the phrase make sufficient. And you can mm-hmm. go and make terrible things efficient and you can make amazing things efficient. So mm-hmm. capitalism by itself is not necessarily um, intrinsically terrible, but mm-hmm. like it is practically terrible in this age because we have abdicated our moral responsibility in the application of it as a tool. And we've elevated it to the, to the kind of status of, uh, of effectively its own God or religion. Like when you see like people in government that are very pro-capitalist or neoliberal, you know, kind of economics type folks, then they basically kind of treat the invisible hand as, as if it's its own God. And it's mm-hmm. like, you're not meant to worship tools. Let's, mm-hmm. let's just be clear about it. And capitalism is, is not even an ideology, mm-hmm. right? Like an ideology like actually imparts values, right? Like, mm. yeah, yeah. We're, we're blowing it super bad on this one. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, sorry, I shouldn't laugh. It's definitely not funny. It's just, uh, yeah, the... The consequences of us blowing it super bad on just this one is collectively such a consequence. It's uh, yeah, it's not funny. No, no, I, that's, I think it's a fine reaction. And, <laughs> and it's, it's very, you know, sometimes it's frustrating to watch, you know, these politicians go and make that case. Because mm. it's like, wow, I mean, if you just understand it's a tool, like everything that you just said sounds so absurd. Yeah. Right? It's like... Oh, we can't help people because of the free markets. It's like, no, 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 no. Because their hammers exist, you can't help people. Mm. Like, this is madness. Yeah. 
Yeah, and it comes back a lot to what you're saying around the intentionality of things, which is really something that's going through this conversation for me in a really deep way. Actually, maybe this will tie up this section in a bow, which is mm. that, you know, like sometimes they call economics the dismal science, but mm. economics is not a science. Economics is a design discipline. And we've just done a terrible job of designing the economy, right? Mm. There's a million ways to design an economy and we've done a terrible job at it. And because we treat it like a science, because in science, there actually is foundational truth. If you want to understand how photosynthesis works or why the earth goes around the sun or what have you, there is a foundational truth to it. You can keep on investigating. You will find the truth. Yeah. In design disciplines, that's not the case. Like there's yeah. a million ways to design anything. Think about any chairs you've sat in, right? Mm. A million ways to design chairs, right? A million ways to design an economy. And because yeah. we have pretended that economics is a, is a science, and this is really just for the ego of economists, because economists yeah. like want to be able to go, you know, ordain their name in some equation in a textbook and say, I was the one who discovered this sort of frontier theory on da da da. And it's like, guys, no, it's a design discipline. It's like you getting super excited that you designed a particular chair. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. like, great. But like, it turns out that enough people sat in that chair and it made all the poor people poorer. So maybe your chair sucks, actually. Mm. It doesn't matter how many equations you've tied to it. So like, yeah. because we've allowed those people to talk about their discipline, like it's a science, then we've also made a lot of foundational errors as well. Yeah, that uh, I hear that uh, echoing certain things that I've been finding in behavioral psychology as well, um, just in my natural curiosities on this Inspired Evolution podcast is, you know, there's a lot of people that, um, yeah, when you start unpacking just some of the research that's done and people have dedicated their entire lives to certain bodies of um, research within behavioral sciences and um, yeah, even just neurological development and something such as grit, you know, it's like someone can win like a, a prize around, hey, to coming up with grit, but really it is just a different type of like assertiveness, but yet someone's committed their whole career to something called grit. And so now it's this whole new field when really it shares a lot of the synonyms of what was previously there, but yet because someone's identity is attached to it, you said the word ego, um, you know, now it's this whole new field that we have to cater for. And it's, it's, it's pretty remarkable how our, um, how the dimensions of our mind and our personalities play out into, yeah, into the, into the constructs of the world we live in. So question, Tom, um, there's a few, there's a, there's a few big things in there. I'd love to sort of ground into some, yeah, just some just some questions around how do you navigate um, your relationship with, you know, and I'm obviously aware of your relationship with the work that you do in the world, but how do you navigate your way um, through um, the current capitalistic model? How do you find your best, most empowered relationship with it? Um, yeah, how do you stay empowered knowing what you know about the nature of the way things are and yet maintain a sort of empowered, positive relationship with the world that you're living in? Yeah, so like I said, capitalism is a tool mm -hmm. and it's a tool around making things more efficient. And I'm mm -hmm. a person with a background in physics, electrical engineering, bunch of technical subjects, software engineering, blah, blah, blah. And, um, you know, what we do in our firm is we basically look for disruptive technologies that have both radically better unit economics and radically better environmental economics so that we can work toward a world where humanity is a net positive to nature. Mm. And, you know, you know, you say working with capitalism, well, it turns out that actually if you make something with better unit economics, it actually wins, mm. right? You don't need to go, you know, protest at city hall or, you know, be upset at, COP26 or, you know, whatever, you know, is, is the latest thing that, that <laughs> is happening on that front. And I'm actually not against people doing that either. Like sometimes that's the that only seems... voice that you have. It's the only way to go and express what needs, you know, what you need to say. Mm -hmm. But like me personally, as a person who has invented this type of tech, you know, and uh, is, has like raised capital to be able to support this type of tech, mm -hmm. you know, I have another tool in the toolkit, which is I can go and find these things that have much better unit economics, much better environmental economics, and we can redo the industrial economy so that that you know our presence on the planet is positive for nature instead of destructive for nature. 
And that would actually be driven by capitalism as well. It's just using the hammer more effectively. It's remarkable to hear you articulate that because even as you're sharing that, I can feel the blockages in my mind <laughs> um, just because, uh, yeah, there's just so much uh, conditioning, I guess, that sort of pairs a lot of the problems we have with the capitalistic model already that I, and potentially I speak on behalf of some of those that are listening in, can't speak on behalf of everybody, but you genuinely see a world where we can actually be a regenerative force as a humanity for the planet using the tools that we've got in place. Can you paint the picture well, there's for a, us a there's little a, There's a foundational consumption narrative around um, our damage to the earth, which is mm -hmm. the whole limits to growth narrative where mm -hmm. we basically said, well, world population is getting too big. And given that we can't be sustainable, it's just some flavor of damage we're going to need to do. And mm -hmm. I have a talk where I basically speak to this, which is, well, it turns out that the biomass of humans on the planet is roughly the same as the biomass of ants on the planet. So if you took all the humans and put them on a scale and you weighed them against all the ants on the planet, the scale would roughly balance just about mm -hmm. as much total biomass. But one thing about humans is they eat about 3% of their body weight per day and mm -hmm. ants eat 30% of their body weight per day, 10 times more. Mm. So given that there's this, the same amount of us in terms of mass, but mm. they eat 30% of their body weight per day and we eat 3%, they actually literally consume 10 times more of the planet than humans do. Mm. And yet we're not sitting around thinking about like, oh, ants, man, ant overpopulation is destroying the world. No, no, no. They're actually out there literally consuming 10 times more of the planet. It's just, it's not the amount, it's the style. And in fact, yeah. plants actually do more, bacteria do more. There's lots of organisms that, that consume way more of the planet than us, actually. Mm -hmm. But the style in which they do it is they, they actually add more ecosystem services that, than they take mm -hmm. in the process of eating. Yeah, yeah. And we can do that. There's no physics reasons that we can't do it. I mean, bacteria and ants and plants have already shown us. There's yeah. no physics reason that we can't actually add more ecosystem services that we, than we take in mm -hmm. the process of consuming that much. And like I said, we consume way less than ants. Mm -hmm. So to the extent that we can um, get even just a little bit closer to what ants are pulling off, and I feel like we're smart enough to do it, we've chosen <laughs> to be dumb. And mm -hmm. we've been, we've sy systematically chosen to be dumb. Mm -hmm. You know, that's, that's what has made it so pernicious for such a long time period. But if, <sighs> so yeah. Oh, no, it, it, go ahead. I was gonna, sorry to interrupt you. Um, the, the decision to be dumb, is that us, like is the interface of that comfort and convenience, is that really what's at the heart of it in your opinion or is that just my opinion? What are your thoughts on why we, why are we choosing to be dumb? Part of it is that we get sold on these narratives that like, well, it's, uh, it's us or them. So like think about this, you know, 100 years ago, we, we had a bunch of war, world wars. Mm. Right. So it's like clearly very recently in human history, we're a very us and them kind of society. Mm. Even now, like, you know, as people are like, oh, China is the big economic threat. That's basically Cold War language. Right. Mm. So, it's, so it's like this is us failing the conscious evolution game mm -hmm. when in practice, like, you know, um, so, so if you start from that, that world, then you start thinking it's like, well, these folks have access to these resources and these folks have access to those resources. And, you know, you know, what if we like, you know, annex Crimea in order to get these resources and control these pipelines? It's like, that's the general thought process that's in, in mind. Now, is mm. there anything intrinsic in the physical universe that says you need to have those thought processes? Of course not, right? Like that those are thought processes that we decided to take on. That's some mm. of the dumbness that, that is here. Um, and we can choose to take on other thought processes, which, and uh, which are actually based on how the physical world works. Like, so for example, like the phrase survival of the fittest basically got all over the place. Right. Mm. And, um, and that basically, you know, helped to fuel the sense where it's like, well, we're all in competition against each other. And it's like, like whoever is like the, the most vicious or like, who's got the most power or whatever, like those are the you know, that's just the nature of life. Like the nature of life is to go and, and like for power. Uh, I'm just going to tell you that, that the majority of biomass on the planet is plants. 
And mm -hmm. 80% of plants are angiosperms, which are obligate mutualists, which means the majority of life on the planet is cooperative. Mm. Right. And if you understand the majority of life on, on the, on the planet is obligate mutualists, they, they have to be cooperative to live. Mm -hmm. Then it doesn't it give you a different sense than survival of the fittest. Mm -hmm. And think about how much of our economy and our political science and, and everything that we talk about our philosophy, we mm -hmm. built off of this survival of the fittest bullshit, white mm -hmm. supremacy, all these things are basically survival of the fittest kind of ideas. And that's mm -hmm. actually not true of how life works on the planet. Mm -hmm. So like our foundational narratives, you know, we've adopted a bunch of actually pretty dumb foundational narratives. We said, well, it's the laws of nature. And it's like, these people are not scientists. They don't understand nature, right? Mm -hmm. I probably need to explain to them what an, an obligate mutualist is. Mm -hmm. and, and it's like, okay, well, you know, let's stop listening to that. That's dumb. Like mm -hmm. that, we can be a lot better than that. And we actually already know better than that. Like everything mm -hmm. I'm telling you is stuff that we've known for a while. Mm -hmm. The, yeah, one of the things that's uh, echoing in the back of my head is, uh, yeah, when you're talking about cooperation, the the clear thing, the imagery that came to mind was uh, when I was reading Sapiens with uh, by Yuval Hariri, he talks about, just imagine for a second, a whole bunch of gorillas in a stadium watching a football match and how like their ability to do that and inability to do that versus a bunch of humans sitting in a football stadium, like 200,000 million people sitting in a football stadium and their ability to sit there and do that. And then looking at the evolution of how far they've gotten and how far we've gotten and how integral cooperation is to us as a species and how it speaks to the undercurrent of how we've been able to achieve what we have um, with our relationship. When, when anybody says like, oh, that's just how nature works or that's just human nature, mm. that is basically them abdicating their responsibility to be part of creating a great society together. Mm. How important, sorry, another left field question, is the story because I can feel tuning into this podcast already and we're not quite at the end, but, you know, I feel that really what I'm hearing is that there is an opportunity for a whole new story um, for the way that we view the world and the relationship um, of humanity with the planet, humanity with each other, um, and just our relationship with our consciousness. And I think that's probably the little place where I'm trying to interject where I know how much of an impact stories have on us and our consciousness and our relationship with the world. Do you see that as being a key piece for us? Yeah, you know, I actually told, you know, uh, that story at AFEST a number of years ago. Mm. Uh, and you can look up the talk. It's basically- I'll put it in everything's, links to the show. Yeah, everything is connected, here's how. Mm. And I basically describe from the formation of the universe, you know, mm. um, effectively how all of us are connected to each other and the universe at large. Mm -hmm. And it is basically just, you know, I'm organizing facts in a sequence and you can call that a story, but mm. you can also just say like, no, actually scientifically, this is what happened. Like the, mm. the universe is actually tending toward, you know, more intelligence, more, you know, more beneficial complexity, more mm. mutualistic actually. That, mm -hmm. that, has been the, that has been the entire arc of life in the universe. And it's like, for us to go make up a bunch of local systems about our sense of separation, and why mm -hmm. we can't get things done when, when the, the arc of the entire universe is the opposite. Mm -hmm. That's us, yeah, no, really willy, willfully trying to be ignorant. And mm -hmm. of course, you know, I'm not trying to go and have people feel bad because it's like, oh, you're living in this tough time and now I'm calling you dumb. It's like, no, 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 it's not, you know, any individual person that mm -hmm. is, is this. It's just that we have bought into a set of narratives, you know, um, you know, hustle culture where it's like, oh, everybody, that is a survival of the fittest offshoot, right? Like, like take all these things where it's like, take all the, look at all the things that are actually damaging our physical and psychological health. I can point you to the narratives that we adopted 10 years ago, hundred years ago, a thousand years ago that have stuck with us. And they're actually not physically true at all. Mm -hmm. You know, they're not based on how the actual physical universe works. And as I said before, it's like, I'm a physicist. I'm like reasonably familiar with how the physical universe works. Mm. So like when, when these things don't line up, then yeah, I, I call them out a little bit and that's what you'll see in the talk. So I basically try to cover, 
um, how the entire universe and life formed and also the meaning of life in about 34 minutes. <laughs> Just casually. But Tom did an amazing, super inspirational talk, by the way. I, um, yeah. I remember the feeling so it's not just about us being interconnected in like the spiritual sense but actually in the physical sense and then leaving the talk going holy crap like I am stardust but not like just like as a thought but just like as like a visceral like everything's a miracle like I'm actually made up of stardust <laughs> exactly and like that the spiritual at least in this instance is very much based on what is also physically true. Mm. Now you can make up some spiritual stuff where it's like, nah, that, that particular story from this spiritual tradition, probably not true. Mm. But like the, the, the thing that appears in a lot of spiritual traditions is the sense that we are all connected. And yeah. that is literally true. And in the talk, yeah. I basically go and describe exactly how. And yeah. then, and honestly, you know, is that even required? It's not necessarily required. I think it's nice, though, that science has given us the lens mm -hmm. uh, recently that we can go and fully verify a thing that we have spiritually found to be a compelling idea for a very long time. Mm -hmm. I love that. Thank you so much for sharing that. One of my other questions is we talked about our relationship with capitalism and how to potentially upgrade that into a positive narrative. Now, I'd love to sort of glean some insight from your world as well um, in terms of your relationship with some of the more attention-hungry um, softwares, potentially social media, that sort of stuff. How do you manage your relationship with that for the, for the listener? How do we navigate that relationship in our lives? What do you do um, that may be supportive to us? Yeah, um, let me see. So I, I have, there's this game called uh, Neko Atsumi also uh -huh. called um like cat collector or kitty collector and mm -hmm. all you do is you like like you buy things and then it attracts cats you don't actually <laughs> need to use real money because the cats give you money but um sounds ridiculous but you know uh, i have two cats and i like them mm -hmm. and it's and i find that like honestly playing the thing is uh as enjoyable and probably more enjoyable to me than social media and it does exactly the same thing that social media does. It's like a thing that allows you to take like a 30 second break, mm. you know, to get like a little reward. Mm. And, and then like, then you can like put it away. Like it's, it is not filled with QAnon theories. It's not filled with, with madness. Mm. It's just, mm. uh, you get to see some cute cats like playing with, you know, like a, play, like a little like box that you put in the, in, in the field. So, so like, I don't know. I mean, that sounds ridiculous. Like I, I, I bet if I was like the, my mom is a Buddhist, so I should probably be a better meditator. Um, you know, I went to temple and all these sorts of things when I was young, yeah. but like, you know, I bet if I was like, you know, amazingly like well-trained or whatever, I like would not even be vaguely tempted, but mm. like, no, you know, you get into it a little bit. It is part of the modern world. It's a little bit hard to avoid seeing anything on social media. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, um, but like when I find that like I'm out of whack, then it's like, oh, let me go take care of my little digital cats. That only takes like a minute and mm -hmm. basically gives me a better feeling than uh, what actual social media is. Yeah. Yep, because there's that whole aspect of social media as well where people are consistently posting the best parts of their lives and we end up benchmarking ourselves against that and then it can be this consistent living up to aspect of it. Whereas I like what you're articulating is even if it still is your device, it's this opportunity to just cultivate a relationship that doesn't have to be so um, judgmental. Hmm. Well, yeah. you know, actually like going deep on that for a second, it's like, you know, the best part of our lives, the word best is the use of a superlative, right? Mm. And what I find is that the superlative tends to be uh, reductive and it makes you think, you know, less effectively, it makes you less of a person. Sure. Right. Cause, cause if I, if, for example, I told you, if I asked you a superlative question, like what's, what's the very best song you've ever heard? Well, all mm. of a sudden it like makes you need to like devalue so many songs. You, mm. whatever answer you come up with there's yeah. like so many other songs that have been incredibly meaningful in your life that have given you so much mm. and you've devalued all of them because this one is the best yeah what i will say is that the superlative is a type of brain damage 
Mm. Right? Like when we try to apply the superlative to anything, it's actually reducing the cognitive scope of, yeah. of kind of expression that we're able to take on. Mm. And I've had the benefit bringing this back down to regular words and stuff, because I know it's, it's a, a little heady, but it's like, um, I've had the privilege in my life to, you know, be a real smart person that got to work with a lot of really smart people. Mm. And, you know, people are like, oh, you know, this person's a genius. You got to work with them. That person's a genius. And it's true. Actually, a bunch of the people I've worked with are actual geniuses. But yeah. because I've like been able to work with so many geniuses, like I understand how many flavors of genius there is. Mm. The idea that there's a type of best genius is like a crazy idea. It means like, oh, I'm going to miss this person. I'm going to miss this person that has this way of words because I've like opted for this person who's got this way with, with equations. Mm. You know, that, that's crazy, right? Mm -hmm, so, mm -hmm. so like, I think like if we start to, the antidote to that is just to understand that the superlative is brain damage. Mm. That like comparison is basically the, the, um, the kind of assistant to the superlative, right? Because mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. it's like, oh, I went into social media, compared, compared, to, compared. Well, why are you comparing? Because I'm trying to figure out who's the best, mm. right? And so it's like, you're basically assisting a type of brain damage there. Yo. And at the end of the day, like what's actually true is there are a million ways to be smart and there's a million mm. ways to be beautiful and there's a million ways to be all these things that we want to express in life. And actually the thing that makes us happiest is basically deepening our ability to appreciate. Mm. And, I, and I find that concept is different than gratitude. Gratitude is like a thing already happened and I like want to go reflect on it. And I'm not saying gratitude is bad. That's great too. Gratitude, cool, like it. But I think actually a even more powerful capability than gratitude is appreciation. Mm. That whatever this thing is, even if nobody in the world said it would be the best by anybody's kind of, you know, like a ladder of superlative that I found a way to appreciate it. Like people mm -hmm. that are good at appreciation are the people that are good at happiness. Mm -hmm. And like all these other things, like the goals that are superlative based, like once I get to this and become the best at so-and-so or become the best in my school at so-and-so or the best at whatever, those are, that's basically the skill of unhappiness. Mm wow the discernment between gratitude and appreciation the yeah i can feel there's a there's a whole layer of humility woven into the uh the type of appreciation that you're describing because if you can humble yourself even a blade of grass can teach you but that that's the appreciation that um yeah that's profound thank you for sharing. you know there's a there's an exercise you know and not that they should all be broken into exercises and retreats and whatever too, because that's like the why not? That's, <laughs> no, well, I don't know. That's, that's maybe capitalism run amok on um, you know low uh, personal development, but but like you know, there's an exercise that basically says take out a timer, yeah. set it for five minutes, and spend five minutes eating one grape. Mm. And man, if you do it, you will find so many things to appreciate. Mm. Like the, like the bitterness of the outer coat of the seed. And there's like a little slimy part on the outer part of the seed before you get into the inner part of the seed, which is actually has the astringency in it. Mm. You know, like the, the depth of complexity in the skin of the grape, mm. right? That there's like 10 flavors in the skin of a grape. Mm -hmm. The sort of thing that like you, you know, would mindlessly do in three seconds, mm -hmm. you know, eating a grape. Yeah. And you know, it doesn't need to be that exercise, but like whatever exercise that you come up with or whatever practice that you come up with that strengthens what appreciation muscles you have. Mm -hmm. And related to all this stuff, a lot of social media is about comparison and beauty. And like my kind of redefinition of beauty is that if you are healthy and you are passionate about life, then that is beautiful. Mm. And I like it so much more than any aesthetic. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like aesthetics are good for, for commerce. But like, you know, being healthy and being passionate about life, that is yours. Mm -hmm. You don't need commerce for that to exist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Wow. I love that. That's super beautiful. That gently brings me to my last question, Tom. So what is your vision for yourself, for the humanity, for potentially the planet, for the universe? Like what is, when you think of inspired evolution, what do you think um, is an inspired evolution for, for yourself or for us as a collective? What do you see? 
So I think there is a kind of catching up with all the other organisms because they're they're all on it. I mentioned ants before, but really every organism on the planet that has lasted, you know, until now, you know, it's lasted because it is a net positive to nature, right? Like its life helps to advance life on the planet. A bunch, a bunch of like little critters like make the soil healthy, you know, a bunch of, you know, all the plants on the planet, like make it so that that the above ground and, and, and soil ecosystems are able to thrive. Like everything on this planet basically serves, you know, so much other life around it. And only us like locally in, in recent times have become so selfish or have been acting on, type of, uh, on a type of selfishness because I don't think we're intrinsically need to be selfish. This is the selfishness that we have is the natural conclusion of the weird beliefs that we've adopted around survival of the fittest and all these other things, which are actually just not true to how the, how the universe works. So I think like my vision is that like we wake up to some of these things which are just true. You know, I, I do some talks uh, about this because I, I hope that it helps people wake up to those things. And then that we actually redo our economy and society with that in mind. That like our presence on the planet should be, should be a net positive to all of nature. And humanity should also be a net positive to humanity. That our presence should not be against other people. You know, no matter what nationality, no matter what background we came from, like we need to go find a ways to be net positives to each other. And, you know, look, you want to go have a local competition because you want to go see the Super Bowl or something, fine. Like go make a game of it. But like recognize that that is a game. That is an artificial thing that, uh, that is a little fun to do for a bit. Don't go and design an entire economy around a game as stupid or geopolitical matters on things that are that stupid or global resource extraction around things that are that stupid. Like we can do so much better. We are already capable of doing so much better. And th this is not even like, because humans are so superior, like I said, all the other animals and organisms already figured this out. They're already living it. It's like in every one of their cells. So I think like, you know, to the extent that we kind of first catch up and then we can use the intelligence that we do have, you know, that is interesting in, in some ways uh, to be able to go and bring that same sensibility to all corners of the civilization that we create. And, and even that kind of like, you know, the whole like, oh, we got to go to Mars and become a planetary, multi-planetary species. You know what I say is like, we should go to other planets at the point in time where we become the sort of civilization that is good at treating planets well. We are not that civilization right now. The idea that like, oh, we're gonna go there because there's such great mining opportunities on Mars. It's like, oh God, like, like, can you have a shorter form way to go show that our consciousness is not quite ready to go to other places yet? When the first thing that we think of is economic resource extraction, like that's, it's, um, we can do better and it doesn't even take that much, you know? Mm. Wow. I <laughs> resonate so deeply with what you're sharing. Thank you so much for sharing your vision with us. And Tom, not just your vision. Thank you so much for sharing so much of yourself with us here today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on. Um, and yeah, just tune into all the insights and you can feel, or I feel personally, and I can know I speak on the behalf of the Inspired Evolution Tribe and audience that, yeah, some of the things that, you know, we've talked about today, it goes that level deeper. There's like an actual intentionality behind why it is that the way things are and actually questioning and unpick that. And uh, I know one of your things is knowing is the enemy of learning. And that's really been really powerful. I've heard that so much in the subtext of everything that we've talked about today. It's like bringing it back to potentially first principles and unpicking it. And I just want to thank you for taking the time and energy to do that in so many dimensions of your own experience of life so that we can have such a warm, enriched and powerful conversation. Thank you so much for doing this with us today. Thank you. And uh, yeah, as always, on behalf of myself and the Inspired Evolution tribe and audience, wishing you the best for everything that's coming up. Thanks again, Tom. And I hope to do this again with you sometime soon. Thank you so much for tuning in to this amazing episode of the Inspired Evolution. Without you, the Inspired Evolution tribe, this podcast would not be what it is today. Thank you so much for your love and your support. 
Thank you so much for being so inspired to evolve. It's truly inspiring. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the Inspired Evolution on YouTube, the home of the Inspired Evolution's video podcast. We release inspiring conversations such as this every week, along with guided meditations and empowering insights all designed to help you grow and evolve. Honestly, your subscription on YouTube to the channel helps us out a great deal. And one of the other benefits, if you're having any insights or shifts from these episodes that you want to chat about, or if you'd like to leave myself or the guest a message, please do so in the comments on YouTube. I truly look forward to hearing from you. And as always, Tribe, remember to stay inspired and keep evolving. This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc., Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.